Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Friends, it's an honor and delight to be here today with Professor Hindi Nyman, uh, who is the Oriel and, and Lang Professor of the Interpretation of Holy Scripture at Oriel College, University of Oxford. Her research interests include a wide array of topics such as revelation, divine encounter, and prophecy, diaspora and exile, authority and tradition, the history of biblical interpretation, and scholarly practices of reading the Bible and biblical traditions. She's the author of a recent essay entitled Ethical Reading, the Transformation of Text and Self, and is currently working on a new book entitled Reading Practices and the Vitality of Scripture, Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for taking time to talk. So to jump right in, um, how should, how, how do you think the Tanakh should be studied in the 21st century? It's, so, it's something I've thought a lot about. In fact, I started a center um, in Oriel College called the Center for the Study of the Bible and the Humanities. And really everything I do and everything I think about is understanding the impact, the importance, the relevance, um, and the transformation of what we would call Tanakh or Mikra across 2,000 years. Um, so how should it be studied? It should be studied with an openness to science and to the humanities. It should be studied with an openness to literary theory. It should also always be contextualized and recontextualized in what we would call Parshanut Hakaduma, early interpretation, um, um, the history of, of commentary, the history of reading, the history of understanding, and the history of dissemination. I mean, the you know, whatever we, what we call Mikra, what we call Tanakh is part of a complicated material tradition of manuscripts, reception, rewriting, which is kept dynamic through, um, through vocalization, through what we would call Nikud, or what we would call Tamea Mikra, cantillation, or what we would call Mesorah, right? So both with respect to what we would call just the Kreuktev traditions, just the traditions of reading and correction, but also traditions of understanding. And so how it should be understood in the 21st century is about a past, it's about um, a future, but it's also the challenge to make it vibrant in our present. Mm, I love it. Wow. Um, how, how should, um, should there be a difference on how we study Tanakh in a shul or in a religious environment um, or in a day school as compared to how we do it in a university? And, right. and, 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 and do we bridge that gap or allow those to be separate spaces? Right. So, you know, I'm a teacher and what I do is teach. I also have children. I've taught in a religious high school. I spent two years teaching at Maimonides High School before I started my master's and my PhD. Um, you know, everything we do, uh, whether we're talking about medicine, we're talking about mathematics, we're talking about understanding God, right? Understanding what we mean by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, 
we're going to teach different things at different levels. I mean, if you talk about the Rambam and Scharba Onesh, reward and punishment, what you teach your three-year-old is very, very different than how you teach your 18-year-old how to think about issues around reward, punishment, ownership, honesty. Um, so texts and old texts and beautiful texts also need to be taught at different levels at different points in our lives. There are also different contexts for teaching the history of composition. Um, there are times when we talk about Halakhala Moshe Sinai, law um, of Moses from Sinai, um, understanding, for example, the hermeneutical principles, the midot hanidreshapahen, the hermeneutical principles for how we read in the context of Roman interpretation and larger context to think about reading practices that are culturally contingent. That is, they're shaped by the cultures in which the Jews were writing because Jews always participated in a tenacious and determined way in the cultures in which they thought, they wrote, they produced, they were shaped, and they imagined the world around them. So of course, they were also influenced by those traditions. Um, but at the same time, there's this very beautiful tradition that these Midot are already from Sinai. How do we make sense of that? Is this just a tension or a, um, um, a, a, an, in, an inconsistency or a paradox? No, the point is that we understand different ways of interpreting and understanding our texts in different contexts. So um, I, think, I think to understand and to teach Mikra in a synagogue or to, to teach Mikra in a Jewish day school, which is already two very different things, um, is different than to teach Mikra or to teach Tanakh or to teach Hebrew Bible or Old Testament in the University of Oxford or in Harvard University where I studied as a student. Um, and I think we have to understand that it's not good or bad or right or wrong but you know the fact that there's 70 faces to torah we mean it and we live it and we breathe it i don't think there's anything that we need to be scared about however we need to think critically and openly but also really openly that is some people will tell you that source criticism the different sources in, in the pentateuch is historical fact it's even dogma it's not true. It's an approach to reading that was developed in the 19th century, which became very central to the way um, critical um, academic scholars were reading the Bible. That doesn't take away the holiness, the divinity, what's distinctive, what's beautiful, um, and, and what belongs to the Jewish people um, with respect to their texts, with respect to their holiness, and with respect to their own understanding of what Revelation at Sinai means. Mm. Um, I've, I've often said no. I was asked recently to come to a yeshiva and damala hashiv to tell these young rabbis to be what to answer when they're challenged with source critical questions. And I said, first, are they asking those questions? Are these the questions that are burning them, or are they trying to understand how to implement Ramban, right, Nachmanides, or Rashi, or are they struggling with how to read midrash in a post enlightenment context? Because Let's think about what their questions are and how to best meet them where they are. I also said, there isn't a way of answering critical questions. We, they don't go away. They continue to surface and resurface. Again, to go to, go to the idea about child rearing, you know, when your child at four years old says, did Hashem really write? Did God really write all of the five books of Torah? Because Devarim, this happened to me. Devarim says, you know, Moses wrote it, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote it. So how do we, so that's one way of answering that question when someone is four or five. It's a very different way of answering it 
when someone is 15 and isn't sure if that's a reason to kind of step away from Judaism because the story wasn't right. Um, I was sitting next to a young, a young girl um, at, at, um, at Miguelat Esther reading a few years ago, a, a girl I knew, and she said to me, you know, um, I'm not going to stay for this because there's nothing historical about the book of Esther. And I said, you tell me you're leaving, you know, because, because it's not historical. I said, that's just the starting point. The fact that we can't identify Achashverosh as Xerxes or as Darius, you know, the rabbis were fully aware. Where do you want to start and where do you want to stop? The question of the relevance or the presence of Esther, they're not asking about history. They're asking about theology. They're asking about belief and traditions. So our tradition, even our tradition of interpretation and history is so much more complex than we think it is. It's never about, did it happen, did it not happen? It's also not about what's the earliest source. That's not even a Jewish question. We're much more interested in vitality and growth and development of tradition. Not to say that talking about earliness is bad and lateness is good. Part of my point is that it's so much more complex and there are contexts for reading interpretation or meaning as Rashi and their context for, for reading interpretation or understanding as the ancient Near Eastern context or the Hellenistic period. So we have to understand what we mean by composition, transmission, translation, interpretation, and dissemination. And all of these terms are relevant when you ask me, well, what does it mean? Another thing it means in the 21st century is, it's an oh my God question, right? How about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Chiroganesa materials and the digital humanities? All of these things have transformed the way we read and understand. And that can be integrated both into shul, into synagogues, into day schools, and into the academy, and even to advanced high schools or seminaries or yeshivot. How to do it and when to do it is a question of prudence. It's about responsibility. It's about being mature. We don't own or control knowledge. We share knowledge. And we have to understand the so much that we don't know and don't understand. And even if we can answer these questions definitively, if I can tell you where, when, and how Baruch ben Neria, Jeremiah scribe, sat, worked, learned, wrote, there's so many things we couldn't answer about him that doesn't undermine the traditions that are associated with Baruch or the beautiful Midrashim about Baruch in, in Galut Pavel. Yeah. Wow, I love it. Um, and it's raising the bar intellectually. It's expanding Torah and how we can engage so, you know, a, a question about moral progress um, in, you know, in, in our textual understandings in, in their historical context. Well, you know, one of the ways I think of the Akedah actually is, uh, people are surprised when I describe it as a progressive story, because in a sense, it, it's, a, it's this moment of saying, never again will you kill a person in my, in my name. You're going to move towards animal sacrifice, which might not sound progressive, but it's moving away from human sacrifice. And I wonder, like, how, if at all, do you believe that the Torah offered, the Bible offered progress to other texts and social norms in, in its own time period. Like when Maimonides says that like, you know, Torah Shabal Peh, the oral Torah will be in place to, you know, to continue to move things forward, but some things couldn't be abolished. It couldn't be abolished given, its, given the, the context at the time, you know, and yet there were little steps that appear to be progress at the time. Right. So those were lots of questions. So I'm going to take them one at a time. And I need you to interrupt me if I didn't quite hit all of the okay, questions in the way that you wanted me to. Um, so your reading of the Akedah is that um, it offers an alternative from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. 
that's a reading. It's not everyone's reading. Right. It's not right. even all ancient Jews' readings. Um, there are lots and lots of readings of the Akedah. They're readings, as you know, this very famous piyut, this liturgical poem that we say um, uh, during the high holidays, right, of Afro Shal Yitzchak, which would suggest that um, on the dust or the ashes of, um, of Isaac, it would suggest that Isaac actually died and then was brought back to life. There are many, many traditions about the Akedah, and there are many critical traditions about the Akedah that worry about Avraham, and was he right in how he went about it, how he implemented the order, or, or how he stopped short of, of murdering his only, his, his son, his first son, his beloved son. So I want to say that, and, and there are many other readings, and there are readings that you can find in Amichai's beautiful poem, The Real Hero. There are readings that connect Pesach, right, the Korban Pesach, as you know, to the Akedah itself, the very earliest Midrashim from the Mechilta, and even earlier, a book called the Book of Jubilees, is already associating this time as the period of Pesach and understanding the Paschal Lamb, but also understanding right, the Korban Pesach, but also understanding the death and loss of life of the firstborn. Um, I don't think that the Akedah means one thing. I think um, there are, are Shalom Spiegel, later John Levinson. There are many, many people who have struggled to give meaning and understanding in the larger ancient Near Eastern context, in the larger Greek and Roman context, to try to understand how this story both participates in is um, one of a series of examples, like um, 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 like the daughter of Yiftach, but Yiftach, who is at one point in a book called Pseudophilo called she She'ela or She'ila, right? So these, these texts have an account of other kinds of sacrifice with respect to hu human beings um, and giving giving life away, passing child, you know, we, we know of traditions that are alluded to in the Hebrew Bible about um, passing a child through to Molech. And then we have other evidence for other kinds of um, violent and tragic behaviors um, in the ancient world up until later, later peoples and later cultures. I don't think that there is a singular teleological or linear development from bad to good. I think that we need to understand the composition and the traditions that are embedded in Tanakh as part of a series of um, a series of engagements with cultures around them, distinctive narratives about an emergence of Am Yisrael, of the Jewish people, of um, B'nai Yaakov. But it's also, it's not linear. That is, it's, it's horizontal, right? It's about the growth of prophecy. It's about the growth of liturgy. It's about the growth of wisdom. What is Chochmah and Torah? And on top of all of that, there's ongoing competing narratives about origins. So all, all of this is the beginnings of the answer to your first question, which I can't fully answer today. Um, and we would need the better part of a semester to kind of, even just on the Akedah, I mean, to teach an entire course just on the Akedah and think about the different ways in which it's expressed and performed and developed. Um, moving forward, you're also asking, I think, larger questions about ethics and morals. And th the one piece that you mentioned earlier, you know, I've thought a lot about what does it mean to learn ethics or morals from the, 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 from, from the Tanakh, from Mikra. This is a very, very big challenge because there are many texts that we're embarrassed by or we don't read out loud because they're so horrific or they're so awkward or they blacken the reputation of the very people that we idealize, right? You know, whether it's, um, Levi and Shechem, whether it's um, Yehuda, whether it's, um, there's so many, there's so many other stories. There's Ru Ruben, Ru Ruben and Bilha, 
um, 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 Amnon and Tamar. So there are many, many stories, stories, narratives um, uh, um, that that are that we can't celebrate as moving ethics forward. Um, we can't. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't, about, wouldn't one example be like? Like my understanding um, was that the code of Hammurabi, if you kill the slave, it's like a it's a it's a monetary crime, but in but but in the, in the Chumash, it's a capital crime. Like, would that be would that be an example? Well, we know well. We know from Chazal that it's ayin, you know, that it's that it's that that it's mammon, right? That it's money, which is compensatory. That's not what the text says, right? Ayin tachat ayin, shein tachat shein. So what you're already reflecting is a history of reception and interpretation, which we accept that this was never practiced. Or how about um, Ben Soera Morad, this exceptional son that, you know, is so exceptional that he shouldn't live, right? And, and you know what the rabbis say, it never happened. You know, it, it, this, there was never an example of that. So I think linear development and ethical development, and really where I was going with this is that I think we can think ethically about the way we read and the way we think and the way in which our earliest readers, to say that what we're just reading is scripture alone is a Protestant ethic. It's not a Jewish ethic. We never said prima scriptura or sola scriptura. We always read, and this is actually the work of my, of my supervisor, who's still my hero, is James Kugel. And he wrote this wonderful collection called The Bible As It Was, or The Traditions of the Bible. And part of, and that's the larger version, and part of what he wanted to argue already, this is, you know, over 20 years ago, he wanted to argue that part of what we do as biblicists, as Jewish biblicists especially, is show the world that the world of the Bible was never the Bible alone. It was never read and thought about alone. And if we try to do that, we actually strip it of its very life. And, and what does it mean, the Bible as it was? From its earliest readings, we talk about ayin tachat ayin, an eye for an eye read, you know, lex talionis as compensatory, right? Um, we, we, we talk about the akedah, um, and we struggle with Abraham's struggle. We struggle with the ethical and moral struggle. We struggle with um, his failure, Abraham's failures or Abraham's successes, but that is, you know, subsequent reading. What about Abraham? You know, what about Abraham leaving his father in old age? We know that the medieval parsha, you know, you know, the, the, the medieval Mephoshim knew, Ramban knew, talked about it, worried about it, but already Sefer Yehoshua said, ah, you know why? It's because his father worshipped idols. That's where you get that line about Terach. So part of what I want to say is that they're texts that are reading and interpreting and struggling. And they're struggling in very, very profound ways. Or the book of Jubilees explains how it is the case that God could have tested Abraham by combining it with the story of Eov. God tested Abraham. Ah, well, that came from Mastema. It was a challenge to God. So part of what you're already seeing and you're already struggling with as you read our earliest texts, because none of the readings you offered me today thus far are reading the text alone. And to simply say the Code of Hammurabi and Ayin Tachat Ayin, and we see that there and we see that here, as though there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. In fact, there's no one-to-one -one correspondence. These are scholars who are trying to help us contextualize the history of law codes. How about genealogies? There's also a history of king lists, the Sumerian king list. Genealogies, what we call toldot, are selective, deliberate. There's an implicit narrative. There's a, a colleague, a wonderful man who just died tragically young, named Gary Knoppers, who talked about the meaning of genealogies, or my colleague from Oxford, Hugh Williamson, how meaningful and creative these genealogies are, the toldot are. 
But it's not just absolute narratives and absolute generations. We need to understand composition itself as embedded within cultural context, or I like to say that they're culturally contingent, right, on the worlds in which they were born or written or composed. That doesn't take away from the holiness of the tradition, but it does, we do need, even to mention the Code of Hammurabi is to say that there's a larger real life context for the production of these texts. Um, and, you know, is that troublesome? Is it the problem of uniqueness or is it actually about Tanakh participating in the world, much in the way that I answered your first question about Tanakh participating in the humanities and social sciences. We are of the world. I don't think we stand apart from the world. But one of the biggest mistakes I think that American Jewry does, especially American Jewry, but not only, this is also quite typical of my own field, is it allows itself to be co-opted by narratives that that the, the Hebrew Bible, Tanakh, you know, Torah, the Old Testament, don't, is not formed under these rules. So there's so many ways in which I could talk about the form of poetry as not, we shouldn't measure it against feet and, um, 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 and, um, and, uh, and meter against Greek and Latin poetry. And this is also something that James Kugel has talked about. We need to understand its own indigenous or native rules of what it means to write beautifully and to write poetically. We also need to understand different ways of thinking ethically. And I often have students ask me about animal rights or ask me about feminism, you know, or ask me, um, ask me about um, slavery, right? Um, emancipation. So I think if we stand back and judge the texts of antiquity, and either one of two moves, either say, well, you know, you have to understand that, you know, that we were better than others in the period. That doesn't really help me. Or to say, well, our questions are not really genuine questions. They're the product of a later time. And in order to really understand, we have to appreciate their ethic. No, no, no. I actually believe in progress and transformation, which means we can critically evaluate the past, appreciate what it is, not throw it out, but we can also be transformed by it. In that little article that you mentioned about ethical reading, the transformation of the text and the self, the idea is that as we read antiquity, as we read about texts from the past, including the Akedah, including Ayin Tachat Ayin, we can learn a lot about ourselves, uh, uh, selves that are not full or not complete. We can be taught by the ancients, but we can also teach the ancients. That may sound like an act of hubris, but I think our job is to help us learn more about the past, which also transforms the past. When you reread the Akedah today, you transform the Akedah. You aren't just reading the words on a page of a chapter of Genesis. Wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> amazing. Okay, so um, in the interest of time, my last question for you, a personal question, is about how has your scholarship on biblical interpretation impacted your own Jewish observance or Jewish identity in any way? Right, so that's such a beautiful question. You know, I came to the work I do, and I came to do a master's and a, a, a PhD with James Kugel, having come out of Yeshiva University. I did my degree in English literature, but I always did a lot of work, of course, in Jewish studies and in Midrash. Um, I also worked on music theory, which is also a kind of interpretive work, you know. I had a few instruments that I was playing with and working with. But for me, the world of Parshanut Hakaduma, early interpretation was always part of the way I breathed and thought about the world. But I want to say that um, I want to ask your question um, in the mirror image of your question. I want to answer the question, how has the history of interpretation transformed the way 
um, I am a Jew, but also how has my being a Jew transformed the way I do interpretation? So to answer the first question, well, the history of interpretation, the possibilities of interpretation, which are always emerging and always transformative through the 20th century, even until today, I just ran a big conference with colleagues and postdocs and students on the history of interpretation about Midrash and literary theory. We can embrace what's new in the academy, right, in the university and in poetics and in the world and learn about our texts through those new ways of reading. But we can also take our texts, which I've experienced with my colleagues in German literature, in English literature, in philosophy, we can take our texts and we can show a lot. We can illuminate a lot, not just because philosophers like Kierkegaard or Hegel knew biblical texts or Goethe knew, knew biblical texts, but because our texts have a lot to teach them about the way in which poetics work, the way in which interpretation works, the way in which compositional practices are inextricably linked. That is, the processes of writing are inextricably linked to the processes of reading. And somewhere in between is the performance of those texts. And those texts are read as literary works which are alive to you as you read them. So for me, the space in between is, you it's all about, for me, we can use the word tshuva, we can just use the word repentance, or the Greek word metanoia, transformation, or ascent, or translation. We're always translating, and we're always transforming. And it's either through our tefillot, through our prayers, but it's also through our larger context. And here, to go back to the word ethics and morals that you used earlier in your interview, I really think that the work of interpretation is also about the work of repair. It's the work of tikkun. It's about making our texts relevant, but also to make ourselves relevant to our texts mm. um, without, without blurring the difference, mm. to allowing ourselves the space to be post-enlightenment Jews and post-enlightenment intellectuals, women and men, um, but also to turn back, to look back and to understand as, as, as very humble people, that there's so much for us to learn. And every day we transform and we are transformed by our own tradition. Wow, amazing. Friends, be sure to check out Professor Hindi Nyman's uh, um, articles and books. Thank you so much for this wonderful time. Thank you so much. It's great to meet you. Bye-bye.